Good morning, Real Life Church. Please find your seats. You should have a communion cup, which has got the wafer and the little bit of juice already in it. If you are a believer in the house, if you love Jesus and know Jesus, you are welcome to take bread and wine, whether this is your local church or not. If you love Jesus, if you follow Jesus, come and grab some bread and some wine. If you are gluten-free, we've got gluten-free wafers and the juice underneath is gluten-free and dairy-free and it's vegan and vegetarian. I mean, how do you like me now? Like that little cup is like a miracle worker. So vegan-friendly, vegetarian-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free. Not, oh, the wafers are. The wafer's here. So you need a separate gluten-free wafer, but you can use the little bit of juice. I hope that helps. So we are kicking off our brand new series, Heaven Started Counting. You should get very comfortable with the number three. If we have not met yet, my name is Melanie. I'm married to Stuart, and together we lead Real Life Church. I generally speak and look after the young. So if at any point you feel like, oh my gosh, she's speaking to us like we're teenagers, I apologize in advance, okay? Um, If I shout, put your phone away, look at me, um, that'll be why, okay? So when heaven started counting, one, two, three. So you should get used to the number three. We've got three weeks of Easter, and I just want to give you a little heads up for the Easter treats. So this week, I hope you like the Maltese bunny on your seat. Yeah. Next week when you come, there will be Kit Kat bunnies. The week after, little boxes of mini eggs. So you have to come every week to get the snacks. Um, And even if you don't like them, I would suggest put them in your pocket and give them to someone else. If you are dairy-free or gluten-free, I even found you some little chocolate bunnies that I've put in the free-from crate. So they are vegan-friendly and they are gluten-free. So either way, you're getting a bunny in the next few weeks. I've also got three of these to give away and three of these to give away. So this book is called The Final Days of Jesus. I've been reading this book. It's so rich. It's so beautiful. It covers loads of what we're going to be preaching on over the next few weeks. I promise you, I've just ripped it off out of here, but it is beautiful. It takes you through scripture. It takes you through maps, pictures. Absolutely brilliant. It's a little bit meaty, So obviously still suitable for vegetarians. So I've got three copies of this. If you would like a copy, I want you to come forward and take it. I've got three. So one, two, three. I need three people. Aaron, you're number one. Go. Paul at the back, number two. Do you know what? If you come into Margaret, come and take this one. Paul will get one to you. Then, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I read this every year, John Piper. It is absolutely outstanding. Year 10 plus, you would be easy able to cope with this. So my one, two, three for year 10 plus, I'm going to ask three of you to come forward and get this book. If more of you would like this book, 
I'm going to give it to you, all right? So if you haven't come forward in year 10 plus for this book, but you think you would like it, tell me at the end and we will get it to you. 50 reasons why Jesus had to die. You can read one a day. It is beautiful. So two really good books. Next week, I've got a load of kids' books coming. So if you've got kids in your house and you think, I'd love some Easter stories, I'm going to recommend some for you. So three Easter treats, three books, we're all about three here. This Easter, we want to take a look at the three days of Easter. So the Friday, the Saturday, and the Sunday. We want to consider what it looked like for our God, who is one, but is also three. And we want to consider what heaven was counting down to and what heaven was counting on. I want to stir our hearts to look at things from heaven's perspective. I want us to start seeing and asking, what is our God who is one and three up to? What is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing? So when I look at my life in the natural, I might see disaster. But when I look at it from heaven's perspective, when I see what heaven sees, when I see what the Father sees, when I see what the Son sees, when I see what the Spirit is doing, everything changes. So today, we're looking at the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus that led to the death of Jesus. And the question we're asking is, what was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit up to? What was heaven counting down to when they looked upon the betrayal, the arrest, and the death of Jesus? What were they looking at? What were they counting on? What were they hoping for? Next week, oh, and as part of my preach this morning, we're going to do a Trinity sidebar. So for 10 minutes, Charlotte's going to come up and teach us on what it means that our God is one and our God is three. If you missed the real life school teaching on the Trinity, it was outstanding. And so Charlotte's going to come and bring 10 minutes of it. But let me say, next time that rolls around in the syllabus, you should sign up. It stirs our worship when we see who God is and what he's like. It causes us to follow him and want to be more like him. It makes us stand in awe of him when we know how other he is. So this week, that's what we're doing. Next week, we're looking at the Saturday, which was the Sabbath, the day that God rested and waited, which I I find just staggering. So I'm going to be speaking about what it's like to rest and what it's like to wait. And Stuart's going to do a theology sidebar on the Sabbath, what it means that God calls his people to rest and to wait. And then the week after is Easter Sunday, and we are going to celebrate with all of heaven That's Friday led to Saturday, which led to Sunday. And that everything on that day changed. And Stuart will be speaking at that one. So for this morning, we're looking at Matthew. So if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be in Matthew and we're going to be in Isaiah. So Rob's going to read for me Matthew 26. So you can put your finger in this page. Or if it's on your phone, put it on your phone. So Matthew 26, 47 to 56. And then Aaron's going to be reading from Isaiah 53, 3 to 10. So if you've got those two things in mind. So Matthew 26, Isaiah 53. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. 
They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Then Jesus said to the crowd, I, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you should come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was teaching there every day. But this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. At that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. From the book of Isaiah. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way, but he was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, and yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life has made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a good life, a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Thank you so much. Sometimes I don't think we pause long enough and marvel at how incredible the Bible is, how incredible the stories are. So when it says in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus knew what was about to happen, and we go back hundreds of years in Isaiah and we read a description that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, we understand how God who is one and God who is three knew exactly what was going to happen in that moment at that point in time. And sometimes we read stuff in the Bible and we just go, oh yeah, sure. Well, Jesus knew, yeah, of course he did. But in knowing what he knew, he willingly went to the cross. Isaiah, when he prophesied, fueled by the Holy Spirit, never saw what he spoke. Was obedient, listened to what God had said to him, wrote it down, spoke it out. And then for hundreds and hundreds of years, 
never saw what it was he said. He was never alive to realize the promises. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, we understand that Jesus, who was the Son, knew exactly what was coming. Nothing caught him off guard. He knew he'd be betrayed. He knew he'd be arrested. He knew his life would end up being given up on the cross. All heaven knew that was coming. All heaven had been waiting for this moment in time where the Saviour would be betrayed, arrested, and taken to the cross. Long ago, Isaiah, inspired by the Spirit, knew this was coming, lived with that hunger in his heart. He knew that the Son had been asked to carry out the Father's will between them as a trinity, between them as a family, between them as a group. They knew what was coming. So I've asked Charlotte just to come and teach us a bit on the trinity. So I want us to pause in the story. I want us to pause in our going through the story and I want us to hear some teaching on it and then I want us to jump back in with a little bit more understanding and I want us to go further and deeper than we would have done if I just stood here and taught you through the story. There should be some slides because I love a good PowerPoint so hopefully there we go. So the Trinity is often viewed as confusing, as difficult, as a, a really hard thing to get our heads around We can't understand it fully, so often we just park it over here in the too hard, I know it exists, but I'm not going to think too much about it box. But there are many reasons why it is important that we understand the Trinity. And one of the main ones is because it helps us to go deeper in our relationships with God. When we are in a relationship with someone, it's so important that we know that person because the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So if we want to go deeper with God, to know him more, to love him more, to understand more of what he asks of us, we need to know more about him. And the Trinity is how God has revealed himself to us. If we want to know God more, we need to know about the Trinity because it is one of the most fundamental ways that we can understand who God is and what that means for us. So, what is the Trinity? Thank you. The Trinity, the word means tri-unity or three in oneness. And I've put that on there so you can see how that comes about. So Trinity, tri-unity, three in oneness. And the Trinity is the belief that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the belief that each of those persons is fully God. And it's the belief that there is only one God. So three in one. It is a difficult idea to understand completely and to get our heads around. It's one of those mysteries about God that we can only describe, we can only understand in part. And I want to just show a very quick extract from a video from the Bible Project that just helps us get our heads around why we can only know this in part. So this is a minute and 20 seconds. Watch this and I will be back. So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God, 
But in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D object's above and below the plane. So now it makes sense. But imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then, then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience God. The claim in the Bible is that God is transcendent, a divine being through whom we live and move and have our being. Or, as God says, I am. Okay, but I live here in this universe, so when God appears, it will make sense in some ways, but in other ways, it will break my categories. Exactly. There we go. So I find that illustration so helpful to get my head around why we are limited in our understanding of the Trinity. It's because we are within creation while God is outside of creation. He is the creator. He is other and that means there is a limit on what we can understand of God, but that should not stop us in trying to understand as much as we can. So let's look briefly at those three parts of belief in the Trinity. The first part is that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each of those three persons is distinct. They're not the same as each other. So that distinctness is important to understand. We see that in loads of passages in the Bible. Because I've only got 10 minutes, I'm not going to go through every single passage in the Bible. If you want the Bible references, let me know and I will happily share those with you. This all comes from the Bible, I promise. The second part of the belief is that each of those three persons is fully God. So what this means is as well as the Father being fully God, which is evident from verse 1 of the Bible and all the way through, Jesus is fully God and the Holy Spirit is fully God. So the Spirit, I think, sometimes can often be viewed as a force or a spirit or a power of God, but the Bible is really clear that the Holy Spirit is fully God in the same way that the Father is, in the same way that the Son is. Now, if we were just looking at those two things, God being three persons and each person being fully God, there's not really a logical problem in fitting all of that together because the obvious solution is that there are three gods. But the Bible is so clear that there is only one God. It says this over and over again, there is only one God. This is something that the early church wrestled with, trying to get these three different things to fit together. And the doctrine of the Trinity is how they articulated that. So that is what the Trinity is in a nutshell. We could go into that for hours, but that in a nutshell is what the Trinity is. I just want to use the last part of my 10 minutes to look at how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact with one another, how they have different roles and responsibilities. So we're going to look at this super quickly. The first thing to understand is that the Father, in his position of authority, in his position within the Trinity, within the three, is supreme. 
So it's the Father whose will is done. If you think about the Lord's Prayer, Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. So it is the Father whose will we are seeing worked out. It is the Father who sends the Son, who sends the Spirit, the one whose kingdom comes. And many times we see Jesus say things, like in John 6, 38, where he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the Father. Point number one. Point number two, the second thing to understand is that the Father, although it's his will, he works that will out through the Son and through the Holy Spirit. Now, this does not make the Son and the Spirit any less God. They are fully God. And that authority of the Father and the submission of the Son and the Spirit to his will doesn't make the Father superior and the Son and the Spirit inferior. It's not the same as we would think when you've got authority and submission. That means superiority and inferiority. It's just not that with the Trinity. The Son and the Spirit are fully God in the same way that the Father is, but they submit to the will of the Father and they work together to see that will being done and to see the kingdom coming. Point number three. The roles and the relationships that we see within the Trinity are driven by unity and by love. So this interaction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that authority and submission comes out of a love relationship. In John 14, 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So Jesus doesn't obey out of coercion, out of force, out of a grudging sense of I have to obey. He obeys out of love because they have that same mission, that same unity. And love is at the heart of the Trinity and all that they do. Point number four, while God the Father points to the Son, we see the Father working out his will through Jesus. We see him sharing his glory with Jesus. We see him pointing to Jesus saying, this is my Son who I love. Look at him. We see the Father saying that Jesus should be worshipped. We see the Father pointing to the Son. But at the same time, in everything he does, Jesus longs to give honour and glory back to his Father. So the whole framework of the earthly work, life, ministry, mission of Jesus was to do the will of his Father and to make sure that the ultimate glory and honour goes back to his Father. So that's really important to understand as well. In humility and in love, we see that each of the three persons of the Godhead, none of them is saying, oh, it's my, it's my glory, it's my honor. They're working together in that unity, not trying to grab attention and glory for themselves. Final point, point number five, the Spirit points to the Son so that the Father can be glorified. So how did Jesus and the Holy Spirit relate to one another? When Jesus was incarnate, when he walked earth as a man, he followed the lead of the Holy Spirit. So for example, after he was baptized, we see that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert where he was tempted. We see Jesus relying on the Holy Spirit. Jesus lives his life, carried out his mission, performed miracles, raised people from the dead, obeyed the Father, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. However, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Spirit was sent for all of us. And the main purpose of the Spirit is to fulfill the will of the Father by pointing to Jesus 
So the role of the Spirit on an ongoing basis is to glorify Jesus, to point to him, to remind us of what Jesus said, to make us become more like Jesus. So though the Holy Spirit is fully God, he is equal in essence, in godliness to the Father and the Son, his role is consistently to point to Jesus and to see him glorified. It is always the role of the Spirit to bring honor to the Son so that the Father can be glorified. And that, quite honestly, is amazing. So that unity of will, that lack of selfish ambition within the Trinity, there is something in all of us that wants recognition, wants to be, to be seen when we do amazing things, to receive credit for what we've done. But the Spirit, in perfect obedience and submission, out of that love relationship that exists within the Trinity, doesn't strive for that. He points to the Son so that the Father can be glorified. So in summary, the Trinity is the belief that God is three, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the belief that each of those three is fully God, and it's the belief that there is one God. The three persons of the Trinity work in a beautiful harmony and unity, but with distinct roles, with diversity, and with an authority submission structure that is driven out of love, not out of fear or coercion. And it is so important and helpful for us to understand this more, who God is, how he relates to us, how he relates to himself. If you want to know more, I will very happily talk a lot longer on this subject. Um, So come and grab me if you do. Thank you so much, Charlotte. That was so helpful. Can you get down that way? Oh, yes, you can now. Good. Okay, so it was the father's plan to crush the son. Isaiah clearly says that. It was the father's plan to crush the son and accept his life as an offering for sin. As heaven watched, they already knew this moment was coming. They already knew that the kiss from Judah set in motion a betrayal, a corrupt hearing, a brutal beating, and then the most bloody, gruesome form of execution that the world has ever known. And not long after Jesus was crucified, was outlawed. It was their plan, and it was coming into being at just the right time. The Son of Man was destined to be betrayed, but he made that choice to obey the Father's will. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, he made that choice to go along with what they set in motion. See, the Father would lay the sins of the world on the Son. The Son would die for the sins of the world and the Father would find his death and his offering acceptable. It's the only way we get to be right with God. It's the only way that as a people we get to be gathered up and called his own. Because our sin was laid on him who died in our place. We see in Matthew that the disciples looked on at this day like it was a horror story. Their saviour, their messiah, their anointed one died, brutally beaten publicly displayed the shame of it all the disgrace of it all what it looked like for them was the end of their mission and what I want to say to you sitting there is sometimes the things that happen on earth look like it's all going wrong 
look like it's the end, look like it's over. And what we need to start doing is removing ourselves from it and asking heaven, what does it look like to you? What does it look like when I look out and it looks like the end is here, when everything inside of me wants to flee, run away, wants this over with, wants this done with, feels that despair, feels that betrayal, feels that it's all going wrong. The question we need to be asking is, what does heaven see? What is heaven counting on? What is heaven looking at? And what we know from reading the Bible is heaven did not look at that day as a day to flee. Heaven looked at that day and pressed in. They pressed in on the pain. They pressed in on the shame. They pressed in on the disgrace. They pressed in on the gore and the blood and the horror of it all. Heaven pressed in because heaven knows that Friday leads to Saturday, which leads to Sunday. Heaven is counting one, two, three, because by day three, everything has changed. And sometimes we just don't see from heaven's perspective, and we're stuck in day one where all we see is horror, where all we see is despair. And we forget that there's an agenda. We forget there's a father. We forget there's a spirit. We forget there's a son who has a plan and has set things in motion that go from Friday to Saturday to Sunday. And you yourself might be sitting here in your Friday. Let me tell you, Saturday comes, Sunday comes. What we need to be doing as a people is looking and seeing what heaven sees, what the Bible says. We need to be those that lift our eyes, lift our gaze. We need to be those that live other, that live in light of eternity so that our trials, temptations, suffering are momentary and fleeting so that our home, our bodies are, are seen as tents, not our final destination, not our everything, not our all, temporary, like a page in a book that will be turned with the rest of it laid out waiting to happen. So I'm going to suggest a few things we can do to see from heaven's perspective. The first thing I want to suggest is the Trinity is a doctrine that blows your mind. And we, because God is so other, it is very difficult to get our heads around it. But if we are truly going to grow up as a people, we need to try and get our heads around some of the things that are chewy. We can't sit there and say, ah, it's too hard, I'm not going to bother. That is what children do. Grown-ups go, okay, let's wrestle it out then. I don't understand this. I cannot get my head around it, but I won't let it go. I'm going to wrestle with it. I'm going to research it. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to book time with Charlotte. I know her weak spot. I know she likes a good stomp round Sutton Park. I know she likes an almond milk, hot chocolate. Well, it has to be coconut milk now, doesn't it? I know she likes a bar of Cadbury's mini eggs. So I'm going, to, I'm going to just tempt her out and say, tell me more. Show me books. 
I know there's others in church that know more than I know. I'm going to learn from them. I'm going to get a seat at their table and I'm going to say, tell me more. I don't understand this. I want to grapple with it. I want to understand him more. Why? Because when we grapple, when we try and understand Jesus, it puts him in his right place and us in our right place and it causes us to worship him. Like when Charlotte finished, I thought all I want to do is worship him who is other He's so incredible. And when we box him and reduce him down to, he's my best mate, we lose it. We lose that sense of awe and wonder that he is so other. He is my best friend. He is also the God who is one and three, who spoke long ago exactly what would happen on the cross then happened. He's that God. And when we grapple with it, when we try and grasp it, we grow up and we stand in the right place, which is awe and wonder. I think when it's time to grow, when it's time to grow up, there are some things we have to get better at. So this is where I'm going to speak to you like your teenagers, all right? So we've got to get better at awe and wonder. Sometimes because Jesus is my best friend, we lose that sense of he's so other. God is so mighty, God is so powerful, God is so... And what that does to me is it causes me to fall down and worship. It brings out in me a, a, a humility that looks so different. It causes me to look at others differently, my world differently, when we see him as other, when he blows our mind, when he knocks our socks off. It causes us to worship him. So I want to suggest we don't look at the Trinity and think it's too much. In a time when we're growing up, we look at the Trinity and we think, how can I learn more? How can I grow more? How can I get my head around this? We don't dismiss it as in, that's too hard. We say, no, I want to get, I want to, get to know him better. Secondly, Good Friday for us is a time to reflect on the death of Jesus. It is a time for us to think about the blood that was shed and a body that was broken. It is a time for us to say thank you because he was crushed for our sins. The punishment of God that rightly belongs to me got dished out on his own beautiful son so that I would never have to stand before God with my sin and with my shame. I position myself next to Christ and I say, I'm with him. And I walk in every day because of what he did. I walk in every time I stumble, every time I fall, not based on my good works, not based on the price I paid, but on the price he paid and Good Friday for me should be happening every day. Good Friday is every morning I wake up and I know that his price paid mine. Every day I wake up and think it's Good Friday round here. The price for my sin, for my punishment on a daily basis was paid for by the Son. A plan that was set in motion long ago, before I was even born, God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worked out a way that a people could be right with God, that he could have a family, descendants, that would over and over again screw up and get stuff wrong, which is why we needed a substitute, which was why we needed a saviour. So I want to suggest a few things. 
that you start researching, looking at the cross. That book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Had to Die, has literally broken me year after year, looking at what it meant that he needed to do that for me. I've spent my whole Christian life being blown away that Jesus loved me in that way. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who understand what Christ did for them are wrecked forever. It's not possible for me to turn around and walk the other way because I've met my saviour. It's not possible for me to do that anymore. It's not possible for me to forget that. I know exactly what that means because I know exactly what I'm like. I know my sin. I know my shame. I don't need anybody else to point it out. I know exactly what it looks like to be me. I know the stuff that you see. I know the stuff that you do not see. So I know if I stood before God with this, I'm in all kinds of trouble. I know if I stand next to Christ, I am just fine. I am all done. I am free. I am forgiven. It's why I worship like I do. It's why I love like I do. Because I know exactly who I am. And I know if I stood before God, I would be declared guilty. I know if I stand next to Christ, I am free, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm all in. So I want to suggest right now you pick up your communion cup. We don't normally do this during the preach, but I want us to do it now. If you haven't got a communion cup, there's one down here. Just come and grab one. It's a little pot. I'm so sorry it's so rough really it should be a goblet of wine crusty bread round a meal table needs must in a hall like this so it's a skanky bit of grape juice and a horrible wafer that gets stuck to the roof of your mouth apologies the sentiment is the same if you are a Christian if you love Jesus come and take the bread and the wine That's the only criteria for eating the bread and the wine is that you know him and you love him. If you don't know him today in this room, let me ask you to consider getting to know the one who has forgiven all your sin and makes you right with God. There is no better way to live as far as I'm concerned. You're free, forgiven, accepted, loved. I don't even understand why anyone would want to live any other way. So if you do not know Jesus and would like to, this is a good point. Please take your bread, take your wine, offer up a thanks to Jesus. You can do it now. Thank him for dying for you. Acknowledge that the only way you get to stand before God today is because of what he's done. Ask him to forgive your sins just from this morning, just from the last 10 minutes. Anything you've thought, said, done, not done that you should have done. Drink the wine and remember, his blood was poured out for you. Such a brutal way to die, but it meant that we know for sure blood was shed. I've been marvelling on that. There's been so many forms of execution, many of them where no blood is shed. The cross was the bloodiest form of execution. It meant without a shadow of a doubt, we know that blood was shed. 
And because blood contains the life, it was what God asked for, his bloodshed. It's not because he's bloodthirsty or cruel, or it's because it's what was necessary for sin. I want to encourage us to be a people that take communion regularly. So in your homes, around your meal tables, with your kids, in your life groups, to be those that pause and remember what he's done. Don't wait for Easter. Think about it. Think, well, weekly, should I get around the table? Monthly, in my life group, just get the bread and the wine out and just pause for a moment and think about it. Think, man, he did that for me. He did that so that I could be part of his family, part of his people, part of his plans. Did that for me. And I find that place so helpful. In that place is such freedom. In that place is such joy. If you're not a Christian in the room, there is freedom for you that you know nothing about yet. It's like a lush field waiting for you to run around in. It's there. There is a joy for you that you know nothing about yet. Understand that God loves you, died for you, and wants for you to enter into all that he has for you. And then lastly, Isaiah spoke what he saw, but he never got to walk in it. And I want to say to you, if you are prophetic in this room, if you hear God, if you see God, if you know God, you will sometimes see things and speak things that you never get to walk in. I want to say that sometimes if you're visionary, if you're sensory, if you, if, if you think like that, you will sometimes experience things that you feel are so real, but you never get to see. Because sometimes in the kingdom, not sometimes, always in the kingdom, God sees from a completely different perspective. What he's after is men and women that will see and speak for him. What he's asking us to do when it's time to grow is be those that see what he sees and speak what he says, whether or not our reality marries up. So we need to be those that see and we need to be those that speak. And for some of you, you are in circumstances at the moment that don't look anything like they should look. But you know what the Bible says and you know what God has revealed to you. And sometimes all we can do is speak it out. All we can do is say, it is clear to me this is what the Bible says. It is clear to me this is what I see. And so I will just keep saying it. Isaiah will have never seen the Saviour be pierced. Never see him be crushed. Probably would have done from heaven. But never on the earth. But he spoke as one who saw it as if it really was. I want to say to you, if you live with things in your heart that in reality are not outworking yet, don't stop speaking. Don't stop saying. Don't stop calling. Don't stop believing that this is what God's got for you. So please, get into the Trinity. Allow your heart and your mind to be blown. 
Make sure you take communion and remember the things that Christ has done. Meditate on them, talk about them, share them, read books on them, and speak what you see. Be like Isaiah, raise your gaze and learn to see things from heaven's perspective. If you are in what you would describe as a dark valley where you feel like fleeing and running away, look at what God is doing. Ask him what he wants to say. I'm going to invite you to stand now. We're going to worship our God who is one and three. Keep hold of that sense of Christ died for me. He loved me. The punishment for my sin has been dished out on him. No one stands here this morning guilty. Christ has paid for that. Come next week, ready to hear what it's like that the Saviour rested, that the Saviour waited for what was going to happen next.